We all think about what we eat. We plan our meals or count carbs or do any number of other things when it comes to what we put in our bodies. But do you ever think about the flavor of what you consume? Sure you do. What we eat or drink either tastes good or it doesn't. In fact, taste is the number one consideration in what we consume. There's more to it than just like or dislike. And there's even a whole industry dedicated to it. Flavor is memory. Flavor is feeling. Flavor is science. Flavor is art. Flavor is McCormick Flavor Solutions. I'm Corey Doucette, and welcome to our Flavor University podcast, where we explore the science, artistry, and industry behind flavor. Learning a new language can be difficult. Trying to understand the nuances or turn a phrase in a casual conversation, but in a different tongue, can take a lifetime. For native speakers, it all seems so easy. But what happens when you're speaking the same language? You just don't have the right words. Often when speaking flavor language, using the right words is critical for both description purposes and for clarity or uniformity. Today, we're talking to Mary Alice Murray, Senior Manager of Innovation Insight, about the communication. Hey, Mary Alice, how are you today? Thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. So let's start how we always start and have you introduce yourself. Tell us how you got to McCormick, what you do there, and what makes your job fun and interesting for you. Sure. So Mary Alice Murray, I'm a senior manager on the Consumer and Market Insight team at McCormick. Um, so I'm talking to consumers, understanding what they like and don't like about our products, what we can do to improve things for them. So before coming to McCormick, I got my MBA at Northeastern up in Boston. And then I also worked at Ocean Spray for five years doing the same type of market research. So have a little bit of experience across different CPG food categories and also different flavor profiles. So are you in Maryland now or are you in the Northeast? I am. Yes, I made the move down to Maryland. Got it. Uh, fellow New Englander. Uh, I'm oh. from Massachusetts originally. Uh, so nice. I was, you know, every time I hear that, I got to jump out there and say, hey, you know, <laughs> what part, what part? I was, you know, like three hours from Boston. So I'm at the opposite end of the state. Enough about the personal stuff. Why don't we talk about <laughs> flavor language? What is this? I mean, are, are we talking descriptors? Are we talking, you know, how we sell flavor using language? What are we talking about when I say flavor language? Yeah. So really we're, what we mean is writing or talking about flavors in order to persuade other people like consumers, to try our food and flavor products. So it's really something that we're challenged with every day in our roles at McCormick and Fona, and it's a little harder than it might seem on the surface. But think about if you're putting together a presentation to get a retailer to take in a new product that has maybe a unique or different flavor than people have seen before. You need to really really take some time to th think about how you're going to describe that flavor to convince the retailer and then the consumer to give the product a try. So really, flavor language is about articulating flavor through the words that we use in order to influence other people's flavor choices. Now, is this what you mean when you say, I, I have a copy of your presentation here, I'm looking at it. You mentioned a flavor is a whole brain experience. Can you kind of break that down for me? Is that what we're talking about here? That's a big part of it. So one of the elements in some research that we did recently is we found that flavor is a perception. So it is something in our minds. It is that whole brain experience, meaning that all of our senses come into play. And so the words we use can literally make or break a, a flavor experience because we're setting that expectation for people before they actually take a bite. 
Um, and from a business perspective, this is really important and has an impact at every uh, you know level of the funnel that we think about. So if we're not using language that's memorable, we're not going to drive awareness. If our language isn't compelling, then we're not going to generate interest or get into consumers' consideration sets. And then if we're not using persuasive language, consumers aren't actually going to pick us up um, and purchase our products. Now, when I'm picturing, you know, this whole brain experience that you're talking about, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of like a science experiment or, you know, being in some kind of, of medical facility where I'm going through like a CT scan. Is that is that what we're talking about here? Are we like looking at people's brains and kind of, you know, figuring out which parts light up? So we haven't done that at McCormick, but some other scientists have out there. And actually, there were some interesting experiments that we learned about through our research where some consumers were in an MRI machine tasting different wines. And when they were told the wine was more expensive, different pleasure centers of the brain lit up. So again, what we're telling consumers really has a physical impact on that, that flavor experience. So if what we're telling them has an impact on their experience, how do we get away from negatively influencing them? Is that something we're concentrating on? And if so, is that information also relative and important to us? Definitely. So there's a di a several different challenges that can come up when it relates to flavor. And so we actually identified six different challenges that we need to kind of work around when it comes to talking about flavor. So I can quickly go through what we came up with. So the first challenge is that flavor is really highly personal. And so remember, flavor is a perception. So people are going to relate to flavor in different ways. And so People are, our perceptions of flavor are impacted by our own individual, what we call flavor personalities or our habits and our preferences. Related to that, flavor is really subjective. And so are the words that we use to describe flavor. So people are going to understand or interpret the words that we use in different ways. And this can become a problem if, you know, we really hype up a flavor experience and build up these expectations and then people try it. And they feel let down because we didn't meet their expectations. Another similar uh, challenge is that flavor can be easily misinterpreted. And again, so are the words that we use. So really, less can be more so that we reduce the amount of misinterpretation that can happen. So an example of this, think of the word bold on a particular, um, you know, any type of product that's out there in a grocery store. Let's say we use the word bold but there's other similar products around us at shelf that don't have that terminology on it. We might have in, uh, introduced a differentiator that hurt us versus helped us because there could be a set of consumers out there that see bold and they think, oh, this is going to be way too intense for me. So I'm going to go to this similar product over here that doesn't have that word on it. So words do really matter. The fourth challenge, flavors amorphous. There's really not a good way to talk about flavor. And in the English language, there's no word for experiencing flavor. So that makes it really hard to try to talk or write about. Fifth, flavor is really intimidating, especially new flavors. There, you know, Consumers do have this fear of the unknown. So the language that we use really needs to um, help break through people's neophobia or their fear of something new. Um, and then last but not least, that's flavor that's Flavor is really interdependent, and this goes back to all five senses being involved. It's not just about taste, and 
you know, maybe the experience on your tongue, sight, sound, smell, it's all coming into play. So we can't lose fat, uh, lose sight of that either. I, I think it's always interesting when I hear that there's no word for something. I mean, there's, there's dictionaries full of words. I mean, uh, but it's, it's possible. It's perfectly possible. I mean, there are words in other languages, you know, schadenfreude, things like that, that, you know, mean something to them, but not, you know, to us. So in that vein, can you, can you tell me, like, what about people of, you know, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages? Can we incorporate those words into our language? I think I remember something about umami not being present in our language until we were like, oh, that's the fifth sense or uh, excuse me, seventh Taste. sense, sixth yeah. sense. Yeah. What about, you know, in other languages, do we have to change how we speak to people who speak different languages? That's a good question. So our research focused on North American consumers, but we do think that the principles that we've identified and some of the challenges we've identified are universal. So we haven't gotten into the nitty gritty of what words we should be using in different languages or with different cultures. But again, we feel like the principles, the challenges, those are universal. And so those can be applied globally whenever we're talking about flavor. So in that same vein, how do we help flavor language be more effective? Yeah, great question. So when we were going through our research, we developed a framework that helped us simplify things and break down how we can make sure that our words are being really effective. And so the first step in creating a compelling flavor description is identifying what we've called a quote unquote flavor hook. So think of these as a way in. They're meant to be thought starters or inspiration to help us focus our writing and develop a really clear narrative about whatever flavor we're trying to talk about. And so the framework we came up with, if you try to visualize a dartboard and at the middle, you've got your bullseye and then there's two outer rings outside of that bullseye. So first at the center of it all in that bullseye are what we've called types of hooks. And these are core entry points that all of our flavor hooks are going to be anchored in. And we've developed three of them, the mind, the heart, and the senses. And the reason there's three is that what we figured out is that when consumers are navigating this really complex world of language and flavor, they're really resonating with flavor descriptions that either make a personal, an emotional, or a sensorial connection with them. So the next part of a flavor hook, the ring just outside that bullseye, is the emotion behind the hook. So the emotional takeaway or how we want a consumer to feel after they've engaged with a product or a flavor. And then in the outermost ring of our dartboard, we have the flavor hooks themselves. So these are nine words that represent our hooks or what a consumer's flavor takeaway should be. So after they take a single bite of something, what would someone say the product tastes like or feels like or just is to them. Wow. I mean, listening to that, it sounds like a lot like our flavor forecasting where you guys are trying to be mind readers and, you know, really determine, you know, how, how somebody's going to describe something and how they're going to feel about it at the same time. I mean, what a task to try and undertake understanding, you know, the human psyche, the human belief. I, I kind of feel like you guys are flavor therapists as I'm going through <laughs> here. Well, I did a lot of research and we'll say, of course, it's not just the language that comes into play. So there is going to be, you have to have all of the elements of a product that come together to have to help this cohesive story. So 
again, persuasive language isn't working in a vacuum. It has to work together with the visuals of the product and the physical attributes. All of these things have to be in congruence to really cohesively articulate, you know, what a product is offering. So we definitely don't know everything, but we try to simplify things as much as we could to help with, you know, the writing, the writing process for folks. And how do you guys know if it's working? Well, that's a good question. So this is where our six principles of successful flavor language come in. So we developed these as a checklist that people can use as they're either writing something or after you've finished writing something, you can go through and make sure the words you've chosen are as persuasive as possible. And there's one principle to address each of the six challenges that we talked through earlier. Now, can you give me some like kind of examples of these solutions or of these, you know, what were you doing here? Yeah, sure. Exactly. So the first, for example, to address how personal flavor is, we need to establish relevance. So our writing really needs to cue that a flavor experience is going to match someone's flavor personality, which again goes back to their habits and preferences. And we don't to your earlier point, we can't know everybody's habits and preferences. It's going to vary from person to person. But for example, there's probably a group of consumers out there who really focus on the quality of food or flavor. They may say they have a lot of respect for people and for brands that just make really good food, really good flavors. So a consumer like this might be drawn to a flavor story that emphasizes craftsmanship or makes people feel this sense of pride for choosing really high quality flavors. Another example that we came up with to address how subjective flavor is, is building credibility. So we want to avoid that over-promising of a flavor experience so that we're not guilty of a, a term we've coined over the process of our research of quote-unquote flavor washing. And you can think of this similar to greenwashing and sustainability. So we've defined it as making exaggerated or misleading claims of flavor resulting in disappointing or underwhelming experiences. So really, it's this fine line we need to walk between giving just enough clarity and building trust and intrigue in our writing or our words so that we drive trial, but we don't overpromise on an experience. So that's just a few examples. Can you remember the last time that you were promised something in a flavor and just underwhelmed completely? Like there was a hype out there and you just couldn't get on that bandwagon? Yeah, not me personally, but we did hear from one consumer in particular, and I, I won't call out the brands, but she was very excited to try this fast food chicken chain. She's like, I saw it all over social media. I was dying to go. I finally got there. And all I could think about is I'd rather have this other brand that I've had before that was way better. So um, we've definitely seen it coming to fruition. I think sometimes people build up in their minds a lot of what they're expecting, what they want to see, you know, and when it doesn't, sometimes when it doesn't reach or meet that pinnacle of flavor or of what they were expecting, whether it's, you know, how it felt when they got to the restaurant or just, you know, the sense that they got of their space, you know, while they were there can really affect, you know, how, how their end process or end feelings can, can come out. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to the term that we've coined flavor washing. Yep. How do we prevent ourselves from doing that? How do we stop ourselves from giving, promising too much and under-delivering? Yeah, so one way we can do that is to practice in simplicity. And this also helps overcome this barrier or the challenge of flavor being misinterpreted. So 
removing those extraneous details to help reduce possibility for misinterpretation. So really the most um, compelling or appealing experiences are going to tell a cohesive story where simple language, simple design, and visuals are all in sync. And an example of this, think of a food product that uses really frank, clean labels, maybe on clear glass jars, and they use product naming that's really straightforward and lets the ingredients speak for themselves. So again, practicing this less is more is a great way to help avoid that flavor washing um, as well. Do you think having a, a clear name or a clear brand name helps that as well? I mean, I've seen tons of examples on the shelves where it's, you know, magic this or super that or whatever. And I'm just like, what is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, brand definitely plays a role because people will have an expectation if, with brands that they're familiar with. But that's a great point. So as much as consumers do like some sort of context that they can lean into and understand maybe where this flavor experience is going to take them, um, we can also leave some room for interpretation. Consumers appreciate being able to interpret things in their own ways, project those experiences they have of their own on a product. So we don't have to be too prescriptive. And to your point, limited time offerings are a great example of this, like unicorn kisses and mermaid drinks. Like this isn't giving a lot away. It might cue, oh, this is going to be really sweet. But other than that, it leaves it up to the consumer to really imagine what this is going to be like and create their own expectations. I love and hate limited time things. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, Halloween's here, right? So it's pumpkin spice, everything. Yeah. And it's, it makes, it makes you, I mean, I'm not a pumpkin spice fan. I'm not that basic. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but I, I will say like, I know that the fervor for that stuff starts happening like end of August. It's almost like, you know, the McRib kind of thing, you know, the, the expectation and the waiting really adds to the experience especially like, I don't know if the grocery store that I frequent is Aldi and you know, it's like, it almost makes me like, I have to get there because I know that some of the stuff I love, like they had a sauce that was a very, a good kind of substitution for Buffalo Wild Wings, Asian Zing. And I was like, oh, I got to get, you know, I hope this is here all the time and it's gone. And yep. it just makes me, you know, want it that much more. What do you guys do when it comes to something that's kind of new and maybe unconventional? Like in your presentation here, you have something where it's a cross between like ketchup and sriracha or ketchup and mayonnaise. You know, how do you how do you interest people in that by using flavorland? Yeah, yeah, that's really a good tactic to take when there's something really new and uh, that people haven't experienced or just getting to learn about. So helping those mashups, if you will, help provide reference. So even the most adventurous eaters are going to look for clues that a new experience has something in common with something that they've experienced in the past. So whether it's a flavor profile, how you use it, what you pair it with, they're going to look for some type of context clues. So your example is a great one. The other one I was thinking of is like honey racha. So consumers have this compelling way into a new experience because they blended the familiar flavor of honey with maybe a newer, lesser known flavor of sriracha to create this new experience that gets people interested. Is there, is it easier to use flavor language for like alcohol or is it easier to use flavor language for, you know, snack items? Do certain products lend themselves better to flavor language than others? In theory, what we've come up with these principles 
and the flavor hooks and the challenges with flavor, they're universal. So beverage, food, snack, spice, it can be applied across the board. And actually, uh, one of the examples we found in our research was from an alcoholic beverage company. And so this was really a great example of evoking full experiences. So again, enabling a consumer to experience a flavor sensation before they ever take a bite or in this instance, take a sip. So they're engaging all five senses. So the product that we have in mind is from Absolute and it's their Absolute Juice Vodka product. And so if you've ever seen it, all the elements of this product are bringing to life this really light, refreshing, natural drinking experience. I mean, everything from the name juice to these botanical motifs that are on the label to even the pale coloring of the liquid in the bottle itself. They're all working together to evoke this product experience that's really light and refreshing. So again, it could be beverages. It could be foods. We think that, you know, the principles we came up with really can be executed across the board. We briefly touched on flavor hooks. Let's go a little deeper into that because I I have a follow-up question for later. uh, That's more of a personal thing. I mean, I'm giving you a little preview here of my surprise questions, but go ahead and, and please dive deeper into flavor hooks. Okay, sure. So remember that we've got those three elements at the bullseye of our structure, which are the types of hooks. So the mind, the senses, and the heart. So there's three hooks grounded in each of those elements. So first with the mind, our three hooks are quality, which is all about promising an exceptional or unrivaled taste experience, masterful, which is unlocking the secret to effortless or flavor-packed experiences, and then real, which is all about serving up unadulterated flavors with integrity. Then the next type of hook is the senses. And this is all about using language that's going to trigger those senses before a consumer takes a bite of a product. So the three specific flavor hooks here are indulgent or describing how a flavor can fulfill cravings for really rich or decadent flavors. Nuanced, which is describing sophisticated flavors that can captivate or intrigue a consumer, maybe bring out their innermost food critic. And then bold, which is flavors that are creating a sense of excitement and will really pack a punch. And then last but not least, the final type of hook is the heart. And here we're aiming to make consumers really intrinsically feel some type of emotion. So the specific flavor hooks here are dynamic or describing how a new exciting flavor can make life more interesting. Cozy, which relates to delivering warmth or familiarity. This is going to be like your comfort foods, comfort descriptions. And then uplifting, which is really just trying to spark pure joy and lighting up consumers' worlds one taste at a time. Awesome. Do the way people deliver a message, say if they have an accent, lend authenticity to flavor language? That's a good question. We didn't dive into that quite as much, but I do think there's an element of authenticity that comes with if a product is seen as coming from a particular culture or ethnicity. So for example, like Mexican spices, you want to use language that reflects that particular product to build that authenticity. So we didn't dig into that, but I definitely think there's probably something there. Yeah, I tend to trust, maybe not trust, but it grabs my ear a little more when I hear what I would think 
uh, to be the appropriate accent for a certain product just because it, it lends credence. Like, oh, if, you know, if this person who's a native speaker enjoys it, then it's probably good. It's like when you go to New York City and you listen to the locals to find the right restaurants that you'd never find on your own. Right, right. Or Boston, another good accent. True story, true story. <laughs> you know, if somebody, you know, if somebody leaves their R's in when they're speaking to me, you know, and they're telling me to go somewhere in Boston, I, I, I tend not to believe. <laughs> this is the part of the podcast we're going to finish up. We're going to wrap things together in a nice, neat little bow uh, for our listeners. Let's do our takeaways. Can you give us two or three takeaways, something that you want our listeners to remember the next time they're talking about flavor language? Sure. So I think first... Important to remember that flavor is a perception. So the words we use to describe a flavor are really going to play an important role in influencing that perception. They're not just words on a page or in an ad, so we need to be thoughtful about them. Second, writing and talking persuasively about flavor can be really challenging, and it's probably harder than people think it is on the surface, but this is because flavor is so complex like we've talked about. So getting it right is important, especially in order to grow a business that's either focused on food or flavor. And then third, we can overcome these challenges by following the six guiding principles that we talk through and identifying those flavor hooks that can focus our writing and help us develop a really clear narrative about a flavor. Thank you for that. Very concise, very to the point. Now is my favorite part and hopefully it's yours too. I invite you to be creative, think off the cuff on this one. I've been described as light and sweet for my flavor profile. <laughs> uh, what is your flavor personality? Oh, boy. Um, like the words that are coming to mind don't describe me. I'm like spicy. I'm like, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Tangy. I'm like, that's not really me either. Well, I will say this. It depends on the day. So some days, you know, things aren't going your way. I can be a little salty. Other days... I'm sweet, I guess, or actually maybe I'm kind of like a Sour Patch Kid. I can be sour, I can be sweet. It depends on, you know, the day of the week and what's going on, the context, just like flavor. That's an important piece. Next question, I will say that the the flavor hooks really kind of resonate with me. You know, what what pulls me in? So I would say out of the top, the top three, you know, not going into the, the base nine there, my hook is under the mind. Like I want to bring out my inner flavor critic, like you said, if something's going to, you know, challenge me and say, hey, try this and then tell me what you think, that's me. What's yours? That one's easier for me. That one's the heart. I think especially the one I relate to is like the comfort cozy because I will always turn to like the nostalgic comfort foods in a time of need or even not. Like if I'm in a good mood, I want something that makes me feel good and even better. And if I'm, you know, in a bad mood, I want something that can can bring me back. So I think I'm definitely the heart. Yeah. And uh, that's not to say that I can't emotionally eat with the best of them. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for the Flavor University podcast. I'm Corey Doucette. I'd like to thank our special guest, Mary Alice Murray. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. Awesome. Thanks for listening. And until next time, the flavor of McCormick is the flavor of life. So go out and taste it. <laughs>